Well, good morning, everyone. The top New Year's resolution every year has to do with health and fitness. Eat right, lose weight, exercise more, get more rest, stop smoking. The one that comes in a close second, right behind that one, every year has to do with our finances. Save more, spend less, get out of debt. So we're going to talk today about what God has to say about our money. Now last week when we talked about health and fitness, uh, we talked about how the fact that how you treat your body is actually a spiritual decision. I set out to show you that, um, the, the things you do in terms of health and fitness. Today I want to show you that your attitude about money is actually a spiritual decision as well. Did you know that when Jesus was on earth, He talked more about money than He did heaven and hell combined? Now why is that? It's because money has the unique power to unlock the door to the human heart. Money shows how much Jesus means to me. Money shows what's important to me. Money shows what makes me content. Or if I'm content, money shows where my heart really is. You know, if the secret to contentment was money and money and possessions and so on, we would be a pretty content nation, wouldn't we? I mean, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Even those of you that have the lowest income here have more than the majority of people in the world. And yet, we're just not all that content, which should show us something, right? I mean, money doesn't seem to be the answer. Although, you, you have heard the country song, right? That says, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Let me read you a parable this morning. There was a girl who wanted an iPhone. Her parents told her she was too young for it. She did not like that answer, so she begged and pleaded and drove her parents crazy, even though they continued to say no. She told her parents that every other kid at school had one. They didn't budge. She told them that she couldn't live without it. That got her nowhere. She even tried a couple of temper tantrums to no avail. She told her parents that she wanted an iPhone more than anything she'd ever wanted in her life. She said, and if I get it, I'll never ask for anything ever again. Ever. No more complaining. No more demanding. If you get me an iPhone, I'll be content for the rest of my life. Her parents finally told her that when she turned 13, she could have one. Well, she didn't like this, at least gave her some hope. She counted down the days to her 13th birthday. And on her 13th birthday, they presented her with an iPhone 13. And it worked. She grew up to be contented, grateful, and a joyous woman. She lived in serenity and grace. Even though the iPhone 14 came out, then the 15, then the 25, then the 45, she was still satisfied. She never needed another thing. 
Her life was hard in many ways. She married a man who turned out to be a loser. He abandoned her with three small kids and no money. The kids were a disappointment too. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources, and eventually left home without a trace. Old age was tough on her. She was lonely. The company she worked for went bankrupt, so she had no pension, but she never complained because she had gotten that iPhone 13 as a child. <laughs> she would think of it often, just as she predicted. She was grateful and joy-filled for the rest of her life. On her deathbed, she said, I die a contented and peaceful woman because I found what I was looking for as a child. The iPhone 13 delivered on what it promised. So does life work that way? Is there that one thing that if you get it, you'll be satisfied for the rest of your life? Well, of course not. So, we're going to have to change our thinking on this and put in some, to put in some different practices if we're going to get this thing figured out. You would think that Sometime one of us would look around and go, you know, I've observed people, and I've observed that money and possessions don't really bring the contentment we're looking for, so I'm just not going to play that game. So, how do you get a handle on this? And how do you turn this thing around? Well, you know, you would think, like I said, we could figure it out, but we haven't been able to. And what we have to understand is at the root of this issue is faulty thinking. What has happened is we've believed a lie, and it has been perpetuated by brilliant marketing schemes. And that lie goes something like this. If I get this, then I'll be happy. If I get this vacation, if I get this product, if I get that car, if I get this house, if I get this amount of money, then I will be happy. You know, one thing that uh, God said as well is this, my money doesn't meet the needs of my heart but it reveals my heart. Now last week when we were talking about the topic of health and fitness, um, one thing we said was that Jesus said, a very common verse, most of you have heard it, I'm sure. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we said the strength side of that really does apply to our health and fitness, to our body, because if we're going to love God with all our strength, then one way we show that is how we treat our bodies through health and fitness. Well, if we're going to love God with all our hearts, we got to get a handle on this money and possession thing as well. Because Jesus said, wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be also. In other words, show me someone who's generous with God and with others. Show me someone who puts God first. And I'll show you someone who's loving God with their heart. Now, at this point, some of you may be even thinking, you know, Jerry, I'd like to do this, and you know, what you're saying makes sense, but I don't know how. I don't know how I'm going to see my way out of this, you know? 
I owe more than I own. I don't know how to make ends meet. I'm in over my head. Well, I'm glad you're here today because we're going to talk about some real practical ways to do that. Um, And I'm hoping that this whole thing of money and possessions can go from maybe being a source of frustration and stress for you to a place of joy and satisfaction. It won't happen overnight. It may not be easy, but it's possible. So what I want to do is just give you four practical principles here this morning on how to get a handle on your money and possessions. And as I do that, um, let me add this too. If you'll do these principles, they work. They come from God. They're right from the Bible. But what you have to do is translate them into action just like we said last week you know we know what to do to eat right and exercise and lose weight and all that we know all that but somehow we have to actually do that well the same applies to this topic too Um, there's some pretty basic principles but we have to translate them into action as well so what i want to do i want to show you four ways to hit the restart button on your finances in 2020 so here's the first principle change the way you think Romans 12.2 in the Bible makes it clear that change starts in our minds. You change the way you think, which leads to change in your life. Here's what it says. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. If you're going to get a fresh start this year with finances, then you got to change the way you think. And let me give you three ways to think differently about finances. Here's the first one. I need to trust God with what I own. At the heart of our financial decisions is really a matter of trust. It's the issue of how much I trust God. Over and over and over and over again, God says in the Bible, put me first in your finances. If you do, I'll bless you. For example, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then He will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Can I trust God? That's kind of at the core issue of this thing. It's kind of like this. Um, dads often talk to their sons about girls. And when you start that conversation, maybe when they're young, like at about six years old, the reaction is often, I don't like girls. And if you ever bring up the kissing thing, the typical response is, ooh, that's gross. But at some point, their father could easily say, hey, hey, listen, son, I know this girl thing seems a bit weird to you right now, and I know you're really not interested, but just trust me on this one. Someday you are going to think differently about this. And why does God say that? Or excuse me, why does Dad say that? Because he's seen both sides of it. Life with girls is so much better than life without girls. And what God is saying to us is, trust me on this one. I've seen both perspectives. The eternal perspective is so much better. And that's what I want for you. Don't be short-sighted and try to satisfy the desires of your heart with money and possessions. Generosity is what will bring you ultimate satisfaction. Now here's another way to think differently based on the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 15. Life is not measured by what you own. That's actually just a direct quote. Those are the exact words from Jesus in Luke 12, 15. 
we have to change our thinking on this one too. Have you ever noticed that what you own can end up owing, what you own can end up owning you? Um, I've only owned one new car in my life, but I cared for that thing like a newborn baby. A month after I bought it, I was driving home from an out-of-town trip on the interstate, and a truck in front of me threw a rock and it hit the hood, and it took a big chip out of the paint. I was sick about it. I'm still not sure I'm over it. Um, on the other hand, I had a 1997 Ford Ranger with 200,000 miles, just sold it recently. The paint was peeling because there was a flaw in the paint when it was manufactured. It had been wrecked. It had some dents on it. It was actually the mowing truck for our mowing business when our boys were young. So it was pretty beat up, but man, it ran great. I sold it, oh, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago to the first guy who looked at it for $1,500. I love that truck. You know, when it got another scratch or dent on it, it didn't bother me in the least because you couldn't pick out that scratch or dent from all the other ones. Just recently, I said to myself, I still wish I had that old truck because I owned it, but it did not own me. And it was such a freeing feeling. We have to learn not to put so much value on money and possessions. We have to think differently. Life is not measured by what we own. And here's a third way we need to think differently about money and possessions. It's this. The secret to contentment is not found in what I own. Uh, I want to read you some words from the Bible. This is 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. It's such a good reminder to us. Here's what it says. Yet, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation or trapped by the many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Now the first verse we read there, verse 6, tells us that the richest person in the world is the one who has a relationship with God and is content. That's God's definition of a wealthy person. Think about it. At the core of almost all our spending problems or financial issues is a desire to be content. Because we thought wrongly about where the secret to contentment lies. Uh, many years ago in the 1950s, my grandpa uh, bought a piece of property on a lake in Michigan. He bought it for $3,000. It was money he got from an inheritance when his parents died. And my grandpa loved the water. He loved to fish. So over the years, he built this little cottage on the land he owned. He, he actually never finished the cottage. Many of the inside walls were just bare studs. But he was fine with that. Um, he put a little pier down at the lake with a small fishing boat, and that's exactly what it was. It was just like a little rowboat with a motor on it. But he loved it. He was content. He could fish, he could swim, and he just loved spending time at his lake property. Well, the next generation came along, and they remodeled and fixed up the cottage. They added on more space, a garage, and it was really nice. I liked the fish, but as a kid, 
I would see other boats on the lake, speedboats. And people were going around the lake fast. And they were skiing, and they were tubing, and they were wakeboarding. And I wanted to do that. thought it would make me happier. My dad actually bought a speedboat. But because it had to be docked in deeper water than the little fishing boat, we had to add several sections of pier to it. When my kids came along, guess what they saw? Not just speedboats, they saw jet skis. Yeah. They wanted a jet ski. And wakeboarders on the lake started wakeboarding with boats specifically designed for wakeboarding. Now here's my question. When is enough enough? When does it end? Now that lake property has since been sold. But I remember a running joke at the lake, and it's probably on other lakes as well. It was taken from the word boat, and it formed an acronym, B-O-A-T. And here's what people on the lake would say. You know what boat stands for, don't you? Bring out another thousand. Because at a lake, you're always spending money. And yet I noticed that many people on the lake barely even use their boats. Now, let me quickly add, it is not wrong to have stuff. And it is not wrong to be wealthy. In fact, some of the wealthiest people I've known personally are the ones who had the best handle on this whole thing of money and finances. But when our priorities become misplaced and we're looking for money and possessions to provide contentment, then we have to think differently. So first, think differently. Next, next principle, have a plan. If you're going to achieve success in the area of your finances, you're going to need a plan. Proverbs 21.5 in the Bible puts it this way, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. In other words, you, in the financial world, you have to have a budget. You've got to track your income and your expenditures. You need to know how much you make, then determine how you're going to spend that, because if you don't, more than likely, you're going to end up spending more than you should. You'll go in debt, and you'll make unwise financial decisions. Most people think they have a lack of income problem. That's not the case. It's simply a matter of living within your means. And the only way to do that is to manage, control, and track your income to a budget. Otherwise, your money will manage you. Proverbs 27, 23 says this, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. Now, in today's language, we would say something like this. Be sure to track your income and expenses. Statistics show that only 25% of Americans actually set up a budget. Now, let me, show you, let me share with you a simple approach to budgeting. This is just an example. It's not the only approach. It's a simple approach. It's actually a rather simplistic approach. But it gives you an idea of how to do this and how to put a plan in place. And it's just called the 10-10-80 plan. Here's how it works. The first 10% goes to God. It's called a tithe. God makes it clear that we're to give the first 10% to Him. 
And as we said earlier, the Bible is full of promises that God will bless you if you do that. If you want God to be supernaturally involved in your life and finances, that's foundational. Second, the next 10% goes to savings. You need to be putting some money away for like an emergency fund for retirement. Sometimes they call it a rainy day. The Bible tells us to save. Then the 80% that's left can be broken into categories and you can afford or you can figure out how much you can afford to spend in certain areas of your income and on other expenses. And if you're paying off debt, you may have to go without some things until you've retired your debt. Sell, downsize, make cuts, just get out of debt. Perhaps you need to live off 70 or even 60% for now so you can put an additional 10 or 20% down on the debt. But to do that kind of thing, you have to have a plan. Another way to look at the 10-10-80 plan is like this. First, you pay God. That's the first 10%. Second, you pay yourself. That's the second 10%. And finally, with the 80%, you pay others. But have a plan. Next, third principle is this. Don't spend more than you earn. Proverbs 20, 21 puts it this way. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Statistics vary, but the average credit card debt alone in America per household today is staggering. Somewhere between six and ten thousand dollars. Most Americans have a home mortgage, car payments, student loans, and some even have home equity loans where they're borrowing against their home. A second mortgage debt has become the norm in America. I just read something recently from the American Psychological Association. Millennials are now the most stressed generation ever. Why? Because of debt. Millennials have over one trillion dollars in debt. They owe more than four times Gen Xers do. I've said to my kids many, many times, debt is not your friend. The average interest rate on credit cards is like between 17 and 20%. That means that most Americans are paying over $1,000 per year just to pay off their credit cards. The average interest that Americans pay when you take into account their mortgage, car payments, credit card payments, student loans, is somewhere between eight dollars and $10,000 just in interest every year. What if, instead of making payments, someone was paying you that kind of money? So instead of paying out eight or $10,000 a year, you are receiving eight or $10,000 a year or a portion thereof in interest. You know, the net difference would be sixteen to $20,000. Would you like a raise of $16,000 a year? So how do you do that? You spend less than you earn. Rather than making payments, you invest the money in ways that work for you. Credit cards, if you use them, actually will give you cash back but you got to pay them off at the end of the month so you don't pay interest. And if you can't do that, if you can't discipline yourself to do that, then don't use them. But if you will set aside money over time for cars and pay cash for it and buy it, you can let your money start accruing interest. Some companies, you know, 
even have matching funds for retirement funds. So like if you put in 3 or 4%, they'll match up to 3 or 4%. Another thing I've told my kids over and over again is never turn down free money. It takes discipline. But it's worth it. Finally, fourth principle. Be generous with God and others. Most of the people on the Titanic were rich. And really, not just a little rich, they were filthy rich. Um, One man on the Titanic had a safe installed in his lavish room. And he put over $300,000 in that safe for the trip. That would be the equivalent today of $8 million. But when that ship began to sink, the man rushed to his first class stateroom. He stared at that safe for a moment, then reached beside it and instead picked up three oranges off the shelf, stuffed them into his pockets, and ran for a lifeboat, leaving all the money behind. Because icebergs have a way of revealing what really matters in life. And God tells us over and over and over again to leverage our money for eternity. Why? Because that's the only way to really make your money matter and to find ultimate contentment. These are Jesus' own words in Luke 12.21. He said, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. Putting these four principles into practice will help you get a restart on your finances in 2020. So, can I suggest a next step for you? We are starting Financial Peace University next Sunday. Go! Check out your bulletin for details. It will take these principles we're talking about today, go into a lot more detail, and help you in so many practical ways. Learn to set up a budget. You'll learn how to retire debt. You'll learn how to save for things like emergency funds so that if your washing machine breaks or unexpected medical bills come along, you have some money set aside for that. It'll help you invest your money in what really matters by being generous with God and others. And it can bring you peace and contentment in your life when you put these principles into practice. Do it! Financial Peace University. You won't regret it. Get a fresh start on your finances this year. Let's pray. I'll pray for us. God, I pray that uh, as we start this new year, um, that we could just get a handle on these areas of our lives. Thank you for um, giving us such solid foundational advice in so many areas of our lives. And just like we prayed last week, my prayer is that... uh, We'll just do what we know to do. We've got the principles. My prayer is that we'll just take action. Don't let us leave here today and think, oh yeah, I need to do that without taking action. But I pray that whatever the next step is for each of us, we will take that next step. And God, um, we look to what You've done for us. How incredibly generous You have been with us. God, You love the world so much that You gave. 
You gave us Your one and only Son. So my prayer is that we could get a handle on this thing and turn this thing around and just develop spirits and hearts of generosity towards You and to others. And to do that, we're going to have to surrender our entire lives to You. So my prayer is that we would just do that. We would surrender everything to You. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.